Okay, John um, chapter 1. John, no, John chapter 4, verse 1. That's what I meant. John chapter 4, verse 1. Um, before we get into what we're going to look at today, I don't know if you've had an experience where something shocking or surprising happened. By nature, if it's shocking or surprising, you were not expecting it. You've kind of gone into a situation, something happened, and you thought, I wasn't expecting that. That was a little bit different. Um, and we had, um, Mel and I had one yesterday, um, where we had an experience that was both shocking and surprising, and a touch scary as well. We went to see some friends, we took the boys, we travelled down to where they were living, they were going to see their new place, they'd recently got married, and we were going to spend the day with them. So we arrived there, went into the house, and the boys were very excited to see them, see their new place, and they, you know, kids don't have any, um, any kind of sensibilities, they just ran everywhere, into every room, into their bedroom, dived on their bed, went in the bathroom, went everywhere. So they explored the house totally. And after about half an hour, 45 minutes, while we were chatting, we'd had a drink, they said, we go out in the garden, let's go out in the garden. And so we went out into their back garden, they've got one of these kind of long, thin back gardens, it's a bit of a snake, because there's um, lots of shrubbery and plants and bits of pieces there. And at the back in the corner, there is a pond. Um, and they said when we went out, there's a pond in the back, just be aware with the boys, and we're like, fine, we'll be aware with the boys, and the pond was really old and kind of not very well looked after because they'd moved in, and so it was stagnant, and there was kind of like the green scum on the top, you know, when you get on the top of a pond, um, which made it look not too dissimilar to the lawn, you know, where this story's going. So we were standing around chatting, the boys were running around and pointing at things, we had a ball, and they were throwing the ball, and then we, I was standing by the pond, thinking, oh man, Mark, the pond, just, you know, just to be aware, we, you know, they're aware, they don't go near that thing. And then Levi ran past me, and he literally just ran, walked straight over the pond. And there was this moment where he was suspended between heaven and earth for a second, which looked like a really long time when you're standing there. I screamed no, uh, Mel screamed no, but he, was just, he just thought it was the grass. So he just carried on going. And there was this moment where he was just there, like that. And then, he went, then gravity took over. And he went waist deep in, in scummy, horrible pond water and he was suitably freaked. Mel and I were suitably freaked, but we were luckily only you know, less than a yard from him and he came out of that water quicker than he went in kind of thing. But he was completely, he had no idea what just happened to him. He was like, <laughs> that's grass. No, that's the pond that we'd sort of, you know. And we take full responsibility as the parents. We've actually said, we said, we said there's a pond, but there's not that's the pond. Um, so he was in there and of course he was a little bit distraught and so we thought we'd, we, we took him in the house, stripped him off because it was all smelly water. So we took him upstairs uh, and gave him a bath to wash him off. Asher came up, up realising that Levi was in the bath and decided he wanted to go in the bath. And we're trying to explain to him, it's midday, we usually have baths at the end of the day and you don't need one because you didn't go in the pond. But to a two-year-old, it's like, I want to go in the bath with my brother. So we'd been there an hour and we had both our boys in the bath having a whale of a time, to be perfectly honest. And we went downstairs and kind of said to the, the friends who were meeting, like, really weren't expecting that. That just wasn't what was on our plan for the first hour in your house. We had planned to go in the park in the afternoon, we were going to have lunch there. We, had, we knew what we thought was going to happen, but it was completely changed by this sort of shocking, surprising um, event. And what we're going to look at today in John is uh, an event um, in the life of Jesus where he met someone that wouldn't have gone the way you'd expect it. It wouldn't have gone the way um, the lady in the story would expect it. It definitely wouldn't have gone the way uh, people who would have been standing around watching it, the disciples would have expected it to go. Even kind of people who might have first read the story and know a bit more about the background than we do would not have expected what happened in this story. So as we read it, it's a story that's probably familiar to you. If you've been reading through John's Gospel, you've definitely read it a few times. You've been around church. It's something that would have come up. It's one of those kind of stories but actually, let's read it with those eyes, realising this is a shocking, surprising, scary story. So, let's read, we start beginning at verse 1. Verse one. And what we're going to do is we're going to read this story and we're going to look at it from the eyes of Jesus and we're going to learn from Jesus on how he interacts uh, with people. In particular, there's a woman in this story. She's never named. She's just called the woman. The woman at the well is how she's referred to. Um, and we're going to look at how Jesus interacts with her. I want to pick out five things as we go through um, about how Jesus interacted and dealt with this, this lady he met. So, verse 1, chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was for his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, we'll just we'll stop there. Let's get some background to what's actually happening. Last few sections of John, beginning at chapter Beginning of chapter 2, we're learning things about Jesus. Jesus has provided the new wine of the kingdom, we saw at the beginning of chapter 2, which surpasses the old wine of Judaism. It, Judaism, it, it, um, it, it replaces a ceremonial washing. Jesus was saying, actually, I'm bigger, I'm greater than that. We follow on the end of chapter 2, and we have Jesus cleansing the temple. And he says, I'm going to take this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And actually, there's going to be a new temple, and it's going to be about me. It's going to be centred on me, not on this place. We then looked at the beginning of chapter 3, and we talked about being born again of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, actually, I'm going to be the one, I'm going to fulfill this prophecy, I'm going to be lifted up like the snake in the desert, and when you look at me, you're going to be saved, and God's going to cause you to be born again in him, and that's what's going to happen. Then, at the end of chapter 3, we talk about, he talks about he actually, his ministry surpasses that of John the Baptist. We saw that last week. His ministry is greater than that of John the Baptist. He is, he is coming over. John said, I must decrease, and he must increase. It's all about Jesus. And now Jesus is coming uh, to this woman uh, he's going to come to this uh, deal with this woman there's going to be kind of a, an outworking of what he said of actually people meeting him and being transformed and so Jesus is out baptising as we saw at the end of last um, uh, last week and uh, he's actually doing the baptising his disciples are but he's preaching crowds are coming to him and there is his ministry is growing his popularity is growing and he realises that they, this could be misconstrued there are people around who are kind of uh, marshalling forces against him so he just he said well we're going to leave we're going to go back to Galilee which is kind of where his home was because what happened is the way it worked is um, the way the country was split up you had Judea in the south which had Jerusalem in it the capital where they went for the Passover and the temple was we've seen that uh, and in the north you had Galilee which is where Jesus was from um, Nazareth Cana places like that they were in the north and in the middle you had this place called Samaria so there's three places, you had Judea, Samaria, and kind of the Galilean surrounding areas in the north. And there's a lot of history between the two. And if we just do have to do a brief history lesson just to understand where the Samaria and the Samaritans come in, just so you kind of grasp it. Because what happened way back in Israel's history, um, after the, you know, King David, you had King Solomon. After King Solomon, the, the kingdom split. The kingdom was divided. Um, and it, it split into two kingdoms had the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. So effectively, the 12 tribes, they split in half, and they had, both had separate kings, and they reigned. And if you follow the trajectory of their history, it was basically downward. The kings got worse and worse and worse and worse before God. Occasionally, a good king turned up, and it said they did good, but most of the time, it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and it all went horribly wrong. And in 722 BC, the, um, the northern kingdom of Israel was invaded by the Assyrians, and destroyed. It was taken over. And what happened, the Assyrians, they came in, they took over the northern kingdom, and what they did was they deported a whole bunch of the, the Jews from that area, particularly the influential rich ones. They just took them out. We saw this in some way when we did the section on Daniel, when we looked through Daniel, what they did, what the Babylonians did, because the Babylonians eventually destroyed the southern kingdom about 50 years later. So they, it was a policy. They took all the influential people out, and then they imported a whole bunch of people that they'd already conquered. So basically, what they, they mixed up the ethnic kind of makeup of the area. So they brought all these foreigners in, effectively, with their false gods and their false religions. And what happened is the Jews who were left and these foreigners who come in interrelated, intermarried, and basically kind of mixed themselves up. And what you get out of that is this group called the Samaritans. That's what they were known as. And true Jews who remained in the south and those who were in exile and when they came back, they looked at the Samaritans and they basically viewed them as racial half-breeds. Half, racial half-breeds like with a tainted religion. So the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was racial, it was religious, it was, it was really deep-rooted. They did not like each other. The Jews hated the Samaritans and they, they viewed them as impure before God. Um, because of, of what God, God's commands are and where they'd gone. So it was, it was a deep-fueled animosity. And what happened was that the Samaritans, they, still tried to, they were still going to follow God. And what they, what they wanted to do was they, they said, well, we'll to, to follow God, there's a temple in Jerusalem, but the Jews won't let us go there. They don't like them. So we'll, we'll have our own temple. 
And they built it on a mountain called Mount, Mount Gerizim, which was in Samaria, which was a mountain that the Jews had worshipped on when they'd come out of the Promised Land. And it was near where the altar, where Abraham had built an altar. So it was very much steeped in their, kind of their history, but they, they built a rival um, temple on it to say, we're going to worship here. The Jews to the south were like, we're not having that. And about 120 BC, the king at the time marched out of Jerusalem, took his armies and basically flattened the, the, the temple on that mountain and said, you are not having a false temple, the only one's in Jerusalem, but you still can't come to it because you're kind of tainted. And so there was this, there was history between them that was violent and bloody and they didn't like each other. So we have this kind of, sort of real hatred between the two, which is when you get parables like the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, you can imagine how shocking that was. Even the term good, you know, a Jew would be like, good, Samaritan, that's an oxymoron. They can't, they can't possibly go together. But Jesus tells his story and the Samaritan character is the hero. The Samaritan character is the most loving and generous and kind and shows the heart of God to the injured man in the story. Um, and you can understand when his hearers heard that how kind of shocked they'd be because they didn't like Samaritan. Being racist towards them was part of what they did and they, they, they felt justified and right in that. And so Je- Jesus is travelling through this land of uh, Samaria and he's coming to near where kind of the mountain is and he's tired from the journey it says it was about uh, the sixth hour which was like noon so imagine that how hot that would have been they've been walking it took about three days to kind of travel from where they're up through Samaria um, to Galilee a lot of them the travellers though who wanted to travel from Judea to Galilee actually bypassed Samaria by crossing the Jordan River and going round the other way the thing it took twice as long but they just didn't want to go near Samaria it was that bad, we're not even going to travel through it even though it's quicker, we're going to go round but Jesus decides to go through Samaria and let's see what happens, verse 7 it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you a Jew ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that's a mild understatement. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to draw some water. All right. This woman came out alone in the middle of the day, which was not normal. You don't go draw water in the middle of the day. It's far too hot to be travelling and lugging big jars of water around. We'll find out later a pretty good reason of why she did this. So what she was doing was not normal. There would obviously have to be reasons why would you come out at that time of day and also come out alone. Usually the women would kind of go out together kind of in protection, in numbers, to do that kind of thing. And she rightly points out, Jesus says, can I have a drink? And the Jew and Samaritan didn't mix. The Jews were, were considered the Samaritans unclean. They wouldn't even use um, the same kind of cutlery and utensils as them. They just wouldn't get there. And you can imagine an understandable surprise. How come you, a Jew, talk to me? He said, a woman as well. So it's a man talking to a woman, which again, not done in that culture. So you not just have a man talking to the woman, you've got a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. So Jesus is, is coming, um, uh, he's kind of breaking that social taboo and he asks her for a drink. And I want to just point out the first thing we want to learn today from Jesus when you're communicating with people, when you're talking to people, was Jesus started with the ordinary. Jesus wanted to engage with this woman and he started with the ordinary. This woman wasn't a believer, she wasn't a Jew, she wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem, she wouldn't have been at the temple, she wouldn't have done the Passover and travelled there as Jesus had done in previous chapters. She was outside God's covenant people. She was considered unclean. From our vernacular, we might say, this person's not a Christian. They're outside, they wouldn't go to church, that's just not what they do. 
and Jesus starts engaging with her. And what does he do? He starts with the ordinary. He basically says to her, can I have something to drink? Something so common that, that everyone has to do it. Everyone's got to drink. Everyone has to go to the well at some point to get water. Or someone's got to go on their behalf so they can have a drink. And when it comes to engaging with those who aren't believers, for us as a church, we have much to learn from Jesus. And one of the, the easiest things we can start with is you do the normal, you do the ordinary with them. You eat and drink with them. I don't know what it's like for you, but do you regularly find time to eat and drink with others? Because it's one of those great levelers. Everyone's got to do it. Everyone's got to do it every day, several times a day. We've all got to have our three meals. If you're like me, I'm more hobbit-like. I probably want six or seven in a day. But actually, you've got to eat regularly. And actually, we're there, there to engage with people in there. Do you regularly spend time eating with those who don't know Jesus? That's a fantastic way to build relationships. Think about work colleagues. Think about friends. Think about neighbours. Think about those you socialise with and hang out with. Is eating and drinking with them a regular part of your kind of lifestyle? You can, you can, have, you can eat, dinner, you know, eat lunch together at work. You can go out for drinks after work. You can have lunch together when you're having play dates with the kids. You can have evening meals together. You can have breakfasts together. You can do all sorts of things and incorporate. But actually, eating and drinking with people is just a fantastic way to connect and just be friendly with them, which is what Jesus is doing. He's just asking, so just give me a drink. Let's start with something. But then if you notice what he does, he starts with the ordinary, but then he moves on to, to deeper matters, spiritual matters. He says, can I have a drink? And she's like, why are you asking me for a drink? You're kind of this Jewish guy, why are you talking to me a drink? And then Jesus pushes it on to spiritual matters. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me water, you'd have asked for living water. Now, living water had a double meaning. First of all, the, the obvious meaning, the natural meaning was that it was running water, good water, as opposed to stagnant, kind of dead water. So if you talk about living water, it was something that was running from a spring or a stream that it was okay to drink and eat. But it also, uh, if we read our Old Testament, it has very clear uh, pointings, directions at God. God was the one who would provide living water. In Jeremiah, it talks about, God says to his people, you've, you've hewned out your own cisterns and you're drinking kind of stagnant, dirty water and you're, you're joy, enjoying it and it's not, it's not quenching your thirst and you're forsaking me and I'm the, I'm the fountain of living water. I will give you good, clean water that will actually quench your thirst. And it's, written, it's, kind of, it's dotted throughout the Old Testament that God is the one who is living water. He is the one who's going to bring living water to his people. This woman, understandably, kind of doesn't quite get it at first. And she's like, how are you going to get water out of the spring? It's like 100 feet deep, this, this well that was dug out um, by Jacob hundreds of years ago. And you had to really go down to find the water. And, and she's saying, how can you do that? You can't. You haven't got a bucket. You know, duh. How are you going to get this, this living water out? Um, what are you doing? Jesus says to her on her understanding, this is there in verse 13, 14, he says, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus pushes it beyond the natural kind of understanding of living water, saying there's something deeper. He's referring to a, di- a different kind of water that, that quenches an inner thirst, an inner kind of satisfaction that ordinary water could never thirst. If you drink water, especially on a day that's getting warm like today, you're going to want more. You're going to need it again and again and again. And Jesus is saying, actually, there is a living water. There is a deeper water. And it's often linked in the Old Testament. You've got the living water, but it's pointing with this inner transformation. God talks about putting in new hearts in people, taking out these old hearts of stone, new hearts of flesh. In Joel, it talks about pouring out the Spirit on all flesh. They're all linked into this kind of, God is going to come and do something with his people and he's going he's to change kind of the way you've thought about and the way it's acting. He's going to come and meet and deal with his people. And the woman doesn't get it at first. She's like Nicodemus from the previous chapter when Jesus says you've got to be born again. What did he say? How can you go back into your mum's womb? That's, just, that's crazy. I'm full grown. And Jesus says, no, you're missing it. And it's the same with this woman. She thinks she needs a bucket to get the water out of the well. He's saying, no, there's something deeper. There's something greater here that it is. And one thing we can kind of learn from Jesus here is actually he talks about things, the things of spiritual things, so naturally. 
He asked her, he started with something, let's just have a drink. Can you give me a drink? And then he prompts it and he pushes something on and said, actually, do you know what, there's, there's better water available. There's, there's living water available. There's something that's going to quench your thirst that is more than this, this bucket of water you're going to pull out of a well. And I think there's a lesson here for us. And when it comes to talking about the things of God and talking about how we kind of communicate out, is actually doing it normally and naturally. Sometimes we can we can make it difficult on ourselves how we communicate. If someone says to you tomorrow morning, what did you do at the weekend? The normal natural thing to do would be just to tell them. On Saturday, we went to see some friends and my son fell in a pond and we had to wash him down. And then on Sunday, we went to church. Normal and natural, that's what we did. We're not trying to hide it, that's, that's our life. You're interested, you ask me. And two things will happen at that point. They'll either ignore it and move on and you think, fine. Or they'll say, you go to church, or they'll probably more like to say, your son fell in a pond, yes. And you go to church, yes. And Jesus is just, he's just normal like it. He just says to her, you know, there's living water. Now that woman could have just ignored him and said, yeah, there is, it's in the well, let's get it out. But then she starts questioning him on it. So Jesus starts with the ordinary, but then he moves on to the spiritual. And depending on people's response is how we deal with that. But for us as believers, if we're going to communicate this good news, which we believe is good news, and we want people to learn it, we need to engage them in the ordinary, just do life with them, love them and care for them as friends and colleagues and neighbours, but actually be natural about what we believe. Natural about it. We believe this. You know, people are, if people are sick, it's natural to say, well, I'm, I believe in the God who heals, can I pray? They might say yes, they might say no. If they say no, fine, fair enough. I'll pray for you in secret, I won't tell you. But, you know, I won't pray for you. But if it's yes, okay, I'm just going to pray a quick prayer that God will, do, you know, change your situation. That's what Jesus did. That's what we need to model for him. Then we move on to, um, let's move on to the next bit. Verse uh, 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Okay, the second thing we can learn. No one is too far from God. No one is too far from God. Let's contrast these two women. You've got, oh, sorry, these two people. You've got the woman here and you've got Nicodemus from the previous chapter. I don't think it's a, it's, um, it's coincidence the way John has put this gospel together. He's talking about Nicodemus. Nicodemus was wealthy, influential, learned. He was theologically sound in terms of he'd been trained. He was male. He was moral. He was a pillar of the community. He'd been someone who'd been looked up to and respected. He was someone who was too good for God not to accept into his kingdom. You know, when you look at him, you think, you've got everything. We want you on our team if you were God, that's what you'd be looking at Nicodemus like. He was smart, he was able, he was articulate. We look at the woman. She was unschooled. She had no influence. She would have been uh, despised because of her situation. Um, she had a horrible, messy past. We don't know the more details than other that's written there, but it's not straightforward what happened. Five husbands and the guy she was now wasn't even her husband. There would have been shame and guilt and pain attached to those relationships that she um, had had and why she was in the relationship at the moment that wasn't even um, a marriage. There were some guys who were just happy to use her but not marry her. Um, she would have been despised by those followers of true religion. She would have been considered kind of uh, a backwater, kind of following this pagan false religion she was female, she was a moral outcast, she was, she was someone who, from God's, you know, you would say, you're looking at the outside, you say, she was too bad for God to accept. You've got Nicodemus, who was too good for God to reject, and this woman, who was too bad for God to accept. But what you actually find out is both of them needed Jesus. Nicodemus thought he had it all and kind of still didn't grasp it. This woman still didn't grasp it when Jesus is talking to her. And she looks at her own past. She, she, when Jesus asks her about it, she avoids the question. She, what she said is technically truthful. She says, go and get your husband. She says, I haven't got a husband. That's technically right. But then Jesus displaying levels of supernatural knowledge as he is God, that he knows. He can just say, no, you, you don't have a husband. That's right, but you've actually had five. And the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And the way he deals with her is sensitively. I think that's important to know. He doesn't condemn her. 
He doesn't kind of pile it on what she may have been thinking about herself at this point, especially when he says, no, you've had five husbands. I wonder what she felt at that second. Suddenly, he knows about me. He knows about my life. It's kind of laid out before him. And she must have probably felt the most vulnerable kind of there, standing before this guy alone at the well, and he's looking straight out. He says, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're with isn't even your husband right now. But Jesus deals with her sensitively. He, he affirms her honesty, but he points out what she has. And for, for us, I think we, we've got, we can learn lots from this, that actually, and I know I've fallen into this, is that we can see people who we think are too far from God. Someone like this, with the story she's had, she follows this false religion. From a Jewish point of view, she is way out there. She's on the fringe and beyond this woman. She is just someone who's almost like it's not even worth putting any effort into her. She's so broken, so lost, so far out, so messed up, in so much pain and hurt from everything she's done, so broken in her life to get her into this situation. You can almost write them off and say, she's not even worse. She's, her life is too bad. God couldn't possibly accept her. And that you find Jesus Christ, God the Son, standing here, talking and engaging with her. And as we look through Scripture, there are stories of men and women that God comes to, that if you look and reflect on, you think, they were too far from God. How could God possibly turn their lives around? They were in a position where, where you know, he could, almost he couldn't save them. They were just too far. I think, take the Apostle Paul, who was a Christian-hating murderer, who was rabidly anti-Christian, anti-the church, wanted to lock them up, responsible for, for the death of Stephen. He was right there approving for it. You think, if anyone was too far from God and too way out of God's power to reach, he would have been a candidate. And then he goes on a journey to Damascus and the risen Christ meets him. Bang! Knocks him off his horse. Blinded. And the next thing you know, he's been prayed for by Ananias. He can see. And he is now one of the most zealous Christians ever. And the rest is kind of history. Planting churches, writing some of the New Testaments. You take someone like James who was the brother of Jesus. Jesus' family, his own brothers and mother, thought he was mad at one point. They thought he was crazy. They thought, there's no way you are the Messiah. You look at someone like James, he literally had the Messiah in his home. He grew up with the one they were looking for. He then started performing miracles and preaching and crowds coming to him. So he had it right in his face. He was there. I don't know if you've got people like that in your life. They're around Christians all the time. They're around them, around they're around church, but they're not making any kind of decisions. Nothing's going in. And this, this was James, Jesus' brother, or Jesus' half-brother, technically. And he was like, nothing's going in with James. He's just, he thinks Jesus is mad. There's no way kind of God could ever reach him. And we move forward to the book of Acts. Who's James? James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The council where they're deciding about they let Gentiles in, things Acts 15. Who's the one who stands up and everyone listens to him? This is James stood up. And James said, right, we're going to accept what God has done and the Gentiles are going to come into the church. And you're thinking, this is the guy who thought his Messiah was, was mad, his brother, yet God, God broke in and transformed him. You've got one guy so far from God out there, kind of on the violent end, and you've got the other one who's somewhere so close to it, you can't see it, yet God changes both of them and deals with them. Is there anybody... In your life, anyone you know, anyone in your family, anyone in your circle that you've written off. I know I've done it. Even preparing this, I got convicted. I was even at the prayer meeting on Wednesday and I was praying with someone. And I prayed for someone to be saved. And I even had to start by repenting, saying, I've actually written them off. I said, I always said to God, you can't save them. They're too far. Is there someone like that in your life that you thought, do you know what, I've just given up on them? I've given up talking to them about this. I've given up praying. My heart is not pointed in the sense of God could save them, but almost it's just pointed away and said, God, you can't do anything in that situation. If you are in that situation, I think there's a response you need to make. You need to repent. Just like I had to repent and actually say, God can save anyone. God can move in anybody's life. We don't have the right to write anybody off before him. No, there is no one outside of his saving grace. So if you follow the story of Nicodemus through, what happens? He becomes part of the, the church. He'll turn up again. He becomes a follower of Jesus. God saved him. Well, by the time you get to the end of the story, you'll see what happens to this woman. <laughs> Something amazing happens in her life. 
And I, I ask, if you're in that situation, repent of your sin and then believe that God can save it. Set your heart on God and say, God, you can save anybody. There's no one too far from you. There's no one outside of your reach. There's no one who's heard it and seen it all before that almost, there's, not point, there's no point telling them again because it's going to bounce off now. God can save anyone. All right, let's move on. Verse, uh, I think I'm up to about verse 20 now. Okay, the woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Third thing we can learn from Jesus is it's not about religion, it's all about relationship. It's not about religion, it's all about relationship. She immediately, she, Jesus puts his finger on something in her life and she immediately kind of moves off to a theological kind of theological point, possibly a theological red herring. Have you ever met people like that? You start talking to them about Jesus and they suddenly come out with a sort of, yeah, but what about the tribe in the middle of the Amazonian forest that have never heard about Jesus? Well, what about them? And you almost want to say, but you have heard about him. What about you? You're standing here right now. Let's deal with you. And so she pushes it off to this theological, well, you Jews say you've got to go and worship in Jerusalem. We Samaritans say Mount Gerizim is just fine here. We're going to worship on this mountain. How do you deal with that? And Jesus, Jesus kind of just pushes straight past it and says, actually, they're both going to be obsolete. Whether you, you, this mountain or that mountain in Jerusalem or the temple, they're both going to be overcome. He does point out salvation is from the Jews. God is going to use the Jews as a vehicle for his salvation for the world. So he does affirm that, Jesus himself being a Jew. But he explains, actually, this nature of worship that is going to come and we're going to worship the Father is going to render both places obsolete. They're both going to be there, but actually they're not going to be where kind of you, you worship the Father. And he says that phrase, he says, believe me, which is the, is the same as truly, truly, which has turned up numerous times already in the Gospel. He's saying, believe me, this is important. There's an hour coming when it's going to change. You say go here, we say go there, but there's an hour coming when that's all going to change. It's not going to be about where you go. There's going to be a different revelation. And then Jesus very clearly and very succinctly points to himself. He points to himself in saying, it's about me. There's a time coming, reference to his death and resurrection, which we'll come to as we go through the gospel. And he's saying it's now here, because he is here by his spirit. He's already said, as we read the gospel, that there's going to be a new temple. There's going to be, that old one's going to go, and I'm going to rebuild it in three days, he says. If we go back to chapter 1, he said, there's, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So there was that time, they're come, coming. I think he said, was it Nathaniel and Philip? He said that. This is, there's going to time, God's going to be on me. John the Baptist testified that when he got baptised, the Spirit of God fell and remained upon him. Remained on Jesus. He's the one. He's saying, it's all about me. And true worshippers aren't going to go to each place. They're not going to go to this mountain or into Jerusalem. They're going to come and worship Jesus himself. He uses these terms, spirit and truth. Spirit is a reference to God, the divine, kind of life-giving, unknowable kind of God that's out there that the, that the Jews worship but he's saying actually this God has chosen to reveal himself we saw that right at the beginning of John's gospel in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God and they said the word became flesh and dwelt among us God has cho- invisible God has chosen to reveal himself visibly through Christ and he said you're going to worship in spirit and truth so the spirit has come in terms of Christ I'm here and he says well I'm going to pour out that spirit on all who believe that, if you want your thirst quenched, I'm going to give it to you. And this revelation will go as we go through the Gospel of John. John has made very clear that the Spirit is on Jesus. He is in Jesus. He's descended on him and remained in him. He's going to be the place where you come to worship. And this truth, Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the one who speaks here. That's why he says that when he, you know, his statement, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. Which is truth, truth. Amen, amen. 
I say to you, he speaks the truth. He is the, the representation of the truth of God to his people. And he clearly defines himself, the woman, saying, that one that you're waiting for, it's me. I'm here. I'm the one who is going to stand before you and you need to come to me and worship me. He's just, this is it. It's all about me. It's all about a relationship with a person. And when we communicate our faith to others, I know I do this, but how often do we slip into talking about what a Christian does in terms of the mechanics of it? Christians come to church. Well done for this morning. Christians read their Bible. Christians tell others. Christians serve the poor. Christians do all these things, but actually behind it, underneath it, holding it all together is a relationship with a person. It's not about what you do. It's about who you relate to. It's about who you have a relationship with. And when we're communicating about our faith, are we trying to introduce people to a lifestyle of this is kind of how it looks here, this is where you go, your Sunday mornings are gone forever. Now when you become a Christian, (laughs) that's it. You now come and worship with God's people there and you also lose a midweek evening. You know, or do we actually saying, right, we're actually, our relationship is, is, is about going and meeting a person. It's about having a relationship with the creator of the universe who loves you, who is desperate to get to know you and to engage with you and be part of your life, who wants you to love him in return. Is it about communicating about that? It's not about saying, oh, it's all about these rules that we follow. And there are lots of things Christians do out of relationship, for sure. But its fundamental is knowing and loving Jesus. That's what it's about. And Jesus very clearly pointed to himself. It was makes his teaching different from all the other kind of religious gurus you may have seen in the past and that are presented as kind of these are ways to live. Jesus' teaching centred about himself. We're going to come to all the I am statements in John. Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the resurrection of the life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. It's about me. It's not about things you do or places you go. It's about having a relationship, a living, breathing relationship with me because he's alive. He's alive today and he'll be alive forevermore. So when we talk about communicating our faith, it must always be, it's about a person. It's about having a relationship with a person, about loving and engaging with a person. And when we talk about our experiences of the Christian faith, we must remember to talk about what it's like knowing Jesus, what it's like having him in our life, what it's like relating to him not just activities and mechanics we do. All right, let's crack on. Number four, uh, verse 31. We're going to come back to that little section I missed out, but um, let's do 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. By the way, these guys went to get food, the 12 disciples. It took 12 of them to get lunch. I just want to point that out. If you ever think the disciples, sometimes we think of them as these kind of spiritual giants. It took 12 guys to go and get lunch. I mean, I don't know how, you know how that works. Why they couldn't have given their orders and a couple of them gone, but all 12 needed to go and get lunch. Maybe because it was a Samaritan village and they didn't want to, you know, safety in numbers, but there they went. Okay, and he said, they've come back. He said, but to them, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples says to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're just as dense as the woman, aren't they? And, kind of, and Nicodemus, they don't see what Jesus is driving at so often. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months, then harvest comes? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered their labour. Fourth thing I wanted to learn is celebrate every step of the way. Celebrate every step of the way. Jesus is using an image from farming here. It was usual that there to be a gap between sowing and reaping. That's normal. You plant your crops and you wait. The crops grow and then you reap your harvest. You reap your harvest. That's just a normal thing. But he's saying, Jesus is saying, actually things are changing. He's planted a seed with this woman, and we'll come and look at it in a minute. A harvest has already come. And he's saying, actually, you sowed and you reap, and there's already something happening right in front of you. He's saying that the fields are white for harvest. It's ready. There are so many people there, and that the sower and the reaper are going to be going out together. There's going to be a, a, a harvest of people coming to eternal life right now, and you don't have to wait for this kind of process anymore. What he's referring to is um, 
a verse in Amos, Amos 9.13, where it says um, that the plough uh, man um, will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes will overtake um, the seed. It's basically saying it's all going to come together. There's going to be a harvest of men and women coming into the kingdom of God and there's not going to be this waiting period anymore. Both are needed. You need people to sow and you need people to reap, but it's all going to happen together. And the fruitfulness of the disciples will um, be due sometimes to the work of others. He's saying, actually, some people are going to sow, some people are going to reap, and it's all going to come together in God's sovereign plan. Which means for us that when it comes to seeing people become Christians, seeing the church grow, seeing them come into a relationship with Jesus, we're all going to play different parts in the story. Some of us have the, the privilege of sowing, some of us have the privilege of reaping, but it all means that the harvest comes in. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, that, you know, one's going to do this, one's going to do this, but it's all going to be for God's glory. He says, the fields are wiped to harvest. So the first question is, do you know anyone who doesn't know Jesus? Do you? <laughs> there was nods here, I must say. Okay, so there's a harvest there. But what the point is, you play different parts in people's stories. And it doesn't matter which part you play because everyone's working together for the same goal. Whether you sow the seed or you reap the harvest, it all comes together. Everyone gets to enjoy it at the end. Whether you're the sower or the reaper, everyone gets to enjoy it. And for, for us as believers, we, we come sometimes, when it sees that we're desperate to see people become Christians, we've got friends we love and people we know, and we want to pray for them, but we're only ever focused on the end, which is not a bad thing. But for everyone, there are many, many stages in their journey. I don't, think about your story, tell you parts of mine. My story began with parents taking me to church. They weren't, I don't think they were Christians at the time. They were kind of just church goers, and I got pulled along, and that's where my story began. I learned Bible stories from a quite a young age. didn't have any real effect, but seeds were being sowed by kids' workers in my church who I can name. There's one lady called Shirley who's actually now gone home to be with the Lord. And I don't think she ever saw the results of her labour in me, because I was a little bit of a pain sometimes for her. But she sowed into me faithfully, and one day we'll see, I'll see her in glory and say, Shirley, one, I'm sorry, um, and two, never guess what, that little annoying kid actually became a leader in God's church. And she'll be like, she'll fall off her throne, she won't, she'll be like, really? And say, yes, you sowed a seed. And my, my life then went on, and I was involved with you workers. There's a guy called Al, who was um, uh, one of the youth workers who had a great influence on me, and he sowed into my life. And I don't think I even became a Christian at that point, but he would sow into my life. And if he saw me now, he'd fall off his chair too. And he'd be like, I can't believe kind of what God's done in your life. But it, it's there. I, I remember going to university and there were guys and girls, kind of peers, who pushed me and prodded me and took me to church and took me to environments that I didn't feel comfortable in. And in them, God met me, transformed my life. I was born again. And, they were, and my story contains all these little bits where people sowed into me, and then at the end, there was someone there who kind of reaped the harvest of decades of sowing. And everyone's story is like that. Some can appear quick, but I bet there was prayer and stuff going on beforehand. And I imagine your story is the same. But the key for us is let's celebrate every single step of the story. Someone shared on um, Wednesday night in the prayer meeting just a story about how God had used them in their, their work environment, and there was, no, was no kind of wham-back crash ending it was just this happened and God was good in that situation and we all got to celebrate and enjoy it with them um, but you think that's just another step on those individual stories that they were dealing with and it was fantastic just to hear and think wow and so for us whatever God is doing in your life with others tell the story share it if you told someone for the first time do you know why I go to church I'm a Christian and that was, that was the first thing you've ever told them about anything related to God Tell someone and celebrate it. Because for them, that's a step on their journey. They'll be now joining the dots thinking, you're a Christian and I quite like you. Thought I didn't like Christians, now I do, and you're one of them and you've caused me a problem because I, I had a caricature of them and now I know you and it's not what I thought because you're now a believer and I, I like you. So you suddenly, you're breaking moulds. If, if you get to share a testimony with someone, if you get to talk about it, if you get to pray for someone, share the story, celebrate it. Because the sower and the reaper are working together and eventually everyone's going to rejoice at the end. So tell your stories. Enjoy what God is doing in your life. And, and share them with others. Share them at uh, your small group. Share them with your friends. If you, you know, there's an opportunity to share them here on Sunday, do it. 
But let's just share and celebrate with what God is doing amongst us. All right, last one. I'll wrap up. Let's go back to verse 27, just quickly read that, then I'll read the end, and that'll be the end of the story. It says, verse 27, just then the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking to a woman. The disciples had the same prejudice as everyone else. They're like, Jesus is talking to a woman, and not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. Jewish rabbis, it was written, um, I was reading one of the commentaries, it said that they were even told it was not the best use of their time to even speak to their wife because it took them away from studying the Torah. I'm thinking, just dwell on that one. But that was, let alone a foreign, half-breed, tainted woman. So the disciples were in there. What do you seek? Why are you talking with her, they say. So the woman left the jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to her. Jump down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. Last thing, inspect a harvest. Expect a harvest. Jesus is going on a walk from Judea to Galilee. He meets a woman at a well. He asks her for a drink. The next thing you know, the village is transformed. The town is transformed. There's people flooding out, saying, we know this guy is now the saviour. We've seen it. Jesus stayed there for two days. A Jewish rabbi stayed in a Samaritan town for two days. That's just freak out territory. That's, you shouldn't be doing that. That's shocking, surprising. The town was transformed. And the town was transformed in the testimony of a, a woman who would have been low on the social pecking order. But she went back and said, this guy is the Christ. Expect a harvest. God is at work in the world today and he wants to save men and women. Are you convinced of that? Is that something that you actually say, yes, I believe that? Not, not in other parts of the world where revival is happening and we hear about stories which are just so mind-blowing we can't get our heads around them, where hundreds of thousands of people are coming to know Jesus in other kind of parts. God wants to do it here. He hasn't forgotten about the UK or this town or this city. He wants to save men and women in this place. And he wants to use you to do it. You're part of the church. You're one of his followers. You're one of his disciples. You're full of the Spirit. You have the Word of God. You know the truth. He saved you. You've been born again. He wants to use you to see other men and women become Christians. If we just review some of the things that John has said through his Gospels. It says, But all who did receive him, that would be Jesus, who believe in his name, he gave the right, sorry, the right to become children of God. That's John just saying, you believe in his name, you have the right to become children of God. John 3.16, we looked at a couple of weeks back, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. The ultimate demonstration of God's desire for men and women to come to know him is Christ being sent into the world. He died on the cross, rose again from the dead, that men and women might be saved through him. It says in John 3.36, we looked at last week, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But whoever believes will have eternal life. What we've looked at today, it says... uh, Uh, 4.14 But whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. John, Jesus spoke those words. John wrote those down in the first century AD and the church has been doing it ever since. Throughout history, throughout the world, the church of Jesus Christ has been going forward and men and women have becoming Christians over and over and over and over again. The numbers are staggering. Even today, I don't know what they are, but they number them in like billions 
of Christians all over the world praising Jesus. What began with a woman at a well in Samaria and multiplied out through the disciples and the apostles and everything else. God wants to save people. So expect a harvest and expect him to use you. If you've ever been in the position where you're thinking, could God use me? Would God use me? I'm not good enough. Repent now. Repent now and say, God will use you no matter how fumbling you think you are, no matter how indecisive you think that you are, no matter how cowardly you think you are, no matter how inarticulate you think you are, God will use you because his spirit is in you and that's the spirit welling up to eternal life. And that's going to splash out on others. And God will cause men and women around you to be born again because that's the way he does it. And you'll find yourself being used for his glory and seeing people come into eternal life. And even if you're not, you'll be involved in many people's stories along the way. For every person you see become a Christian, there will probably be hundreds that you've just helped nudge on the journey that you might not know about fully until you get to glory. So God is going to use you. Can we get behind that one? Amen? Can you stand up, please? I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. And we're going to expect more and more men and women to come to know Jesus. Do you want to just open your hands? If you need to do some business with God because something's poked on you today, there's something you need to say, sorry for my attitude, sorry I've written off my friend, my family member, my colleague, my whatever, sorry for my apathy, sorry for, you know, that God, I just thought people are too bad or too good for you or I've just even thought, God, there's no way you could use me. The crazy arrogance of that. There's no way the God of heaven and earth could possibly use me as if I'm somehow outside of his power and control. It's silly when you dwell on it. But thank you, God, that your grace is available to us today. If you want God's grace in your life, just ask for it. Just say, God, I want it. If you want that spirit dwelling up in, wells up to eternal life on your life now, just ask for it. If you want to be used by God to sow and reap for his kingdom, whether you're kind of there at the beginning, there at the end, or somewhere in between, just say, God, use me. I'll be used. Say, God, you know what? I want to be used tomorrow. I want to be used today. Wherever I go today, wherever I go tomorrow, on the bus or the train or in the work or seeing friends or hanging out with their kids, whatever it is. God, use me. Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to come and fill your church for your glory, Lord. We ask you to come and cause us to sow seed widely, sow seed far and wide in our lives, in our relationships. And God, we ask you to see us, give us the privilege of seeing people saved, that we would, see, we would reap the harvest and we would see men, women, young people, children saved and we would celebrate. And God, give us grace to celebrate every single step. No matter how small and insignificant it may look, it might be, we might find out it was pivotal in eternity. So Lord, we ask you to give us grace to do that, even this week. Events we're going to, things that are coming to our mind even now. Lord God, we ask you to use us for your glory. And God's people said...